God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thanks so much for coming today. We realize that it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring the service to you wherever you are. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 5? Now, if you've got the full Bible, that's all the way back at the end of the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. That's where we'll be today, and we're going to show those verses also up here in the video for you, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about the one like us. The message of the book of Hebrews is meant for the Jewish reader. It speaks of things that the Jewish person would know about. And remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers. It's written to them to give them a solid foundation for their beliefs. Specifically, it was written to give them a foundation that made sense to the Jewish mind. Its message spoke of things that the Jewish people would know about. Hebrews chapter 5 speaks of the role of the Jewish high priest. Now in Hebrew, that high priest is called HaKohen HaGadol. HaKohen HaGadol. Now what that means briefly is that Ha is the, Kohen is that refers to the fact that that is the family name that is God said in the Tanakh, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that that high priest would be of the tribe of Kohen which was of the descendancy of Aaron and his sons. Cohen then was the family name. Ha is the. So when we say Ha Cohen, we're saying it's the Cohen, and then we say Ha again, the, and then the word Gadol. Gadol means great or big. So it's really the big Cohen or the great Cohen. In other words, it's the greatest one from among the people of Israel, if you think about it. He came from a priestly role. And it literally means, in Hebrew, since we put the adjective after the noun, in other words, we put, it's, it says the Kohen, the great, it's backwards from English to where we would say the great Kohen. In Hebrew, it's the Kohen, the great. It literally means the priest, the great. So the great priest or the high priest. That's where we get our English translation for high priest from the Bible and what it says there, HaKohen HaGadol. The verses today speak of the qualifications of the Kohen HaGadol or the high priest, the work of the high priest, the humanity of the high priest. Now God Himself made the qualifications of the high priest. He wanted someone who could relate to mankind. He wanted someone who understood man's weaknesses and failings. He wanted someone who also understood man's need for forgiveness of sins. Someone who understood man's need for God's mercy. God wanted someone who understood that man's works would never be enough to atone for, to atone for sin, but that God required atonement for sins in order for sin to be forgiven. In that way, mercy and justice could be both satisfied. You had atonement to atone for sins of sinful man, but also 
you had extension of God's mercy to sinful man. Well, you see, God had committed himself to both of these concepts in the Bible. He had committed himself to being merciful. He told Moshe Hanavi, Moses the prophet, when he passed before him and Moses said, See, God, I want to see your glory. And God passed by him, but he covered over Moses' eyes because no man can see God and live. And then as he passed by Moses, covering over Moses' eyes, he proclaimed his name. And in his name, he talked about how merciful he was. But then he also said that he would not, over, he would not pass over uh, the sins of man. What he was saying, that he wants to be merciful, but the man's sins had to be atoned for because he couldn't just let those sins go. If someone sinned, that sin had to be punished. Well, God had committed himself to both mercy and justice then. But how could both mercy and justice exist at the same time? You would either have mercy or you would have justice. But how could you have both at the same time? If you think about it, how could you serve justice and punish the sin and yet still forgive the sin and mercy? You're either holding to one or you're holding to other, but the two are what we would say mutually exclusive. How could both exist at the same time? The only way that those both could be satisfied is that one with no sin would take the punishment for those who had sinned upon himself. That's the only way. Then the penalty for sins would be paid for, and at the same time, mercy would be given to the sinners, you see. But this plan required that the one taking the sins on himself, he himself had to be without sin. That's the only way that sins could be atoned for. There had to be a blemish-free sacrifice. Just like it said in Hasefah Shemot, Beperich Shtimesrei, in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, when it talked about selecting the blemish-free or the spotless lamb for the Pesach sacrifice, in other words, for the sacrifice of Passover. Then God said, when I see the blood of that spotless, blemish-free lamb on the mezuzot, <laughs> a la mezuzot babait, on the on the doorposts of the house, he said, I will pass over that house and not judge those that are in that house. That's why we call that pass over. Because when God saw the blood of the spotless lamb, he would pass over the sins of those in that house. So it's important, you see, this concept of atonement made by something that was free from sin, or free of spot, free of blemish. But the problem is, is, the sin of that house would only be atoned for for that one year. And then the next year, you would have to do the same thing over and over again. And this would have to happen forever so that the sins of Israel would be covered. Well, sin entered the world through man, Adam, as we know in the book of Genesis. And in order for it to be atoned for permanently without having to do this sacrifice every year, in order for it to be atoned for permanently once and for all time, it had to be atoned for through a man. It came into the world through man, Adam. It had to be atoned for through a man. But that man had to be without spot or blemish. That means 
that that man had to be sinless. In order to be the atonement that would remove sin once and for all permanently from all of us, all of us who believed on this sacrifice. But there was only one person who ever lived that had no sin at all, and that was Jesus, the Messiah. Yeshua HaMashiach is how we would say that in Hebrew, Bevrit. Messiah means the anointed one. That's literally what it means. A Mashiach is anointed one, and that's how we translate to Messiah in English, which also, by the way, in the Greek translates to Christ. That's why we call Him Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ isn't some <coughs> Catholic invention. No, that's actually the English translation of what we say in Hebrew, Yeshua, Yeshua, salvation of God, the rescue of God. You Hebrew speakers know what I'm saying. Yeshua, Yeshua is the rescue of God, the salvation of God. Yah, on the end of that, is a shortened version of Yahweh, which is yud Vavah, what we call Hashem when we read the Bible in Hebrew. That's the name of God. So Yeshua, the Messiah, was the anointed one, but in English we know him as Jesus, the anointed one, or Jesus the Christ. So you can see how Yeshua HaMashiach in Hebrew, Bevrit, it comes to Anglit, or the English of Jesus Christ. Yeshua translates to Jesus, and Mashiach, or anointed one, translates in English to Christ. So if you're thinking that Jesus Christ is some Catholic Gentile God, you're mistaken. That's just the Hebrew translation converted over to English, changed to English. But the English speakers would call Him Jesus Christ, and the Hebrew speakers, the believers, would call Him Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Now the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah both agree in that they say that no person ever existed that was without sin. That verse said that God looked all over the world to find any that were righteous, any that would continually to seek Him and did good all the time. But in all three of those places, in the book of Psalms twice, and in the book of Isaiah once, it says He found none, no, not one. But then in the book of Isaiah, it goes on to say that so the Lord Himself went forward and His own strength, His own arm gained Him the victory. What that means now, pay attention, my Jewish brothers and sisters, what that means when God went forward after finding no one to take away the sins of mankind because everyone had sin, God went forward and His own righteousness, His own strength brought Him the victory. Here's how He did that. He would be born into the body of a man. You say, well, wait a minute. God can't be a man. I want to ask you something right now. Is there anything too hard for God? Is there? I mean, think about it. He became a man when he appeared to Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father, in Sefer Bereshit, Beperik Shmonasre, in chapter 18 of the book of Genesis. He became a man where he and those two angels appeared to Abraham. It says right there in chapter 18 of the Torah and the book of Genesis that Abraham called him Lord that Abraham worshiped him. You can see the conversation, it's right there. So I wanna ask you again, is there anything too hard for God? 
You see, it was important that God Himself would become the man and He Himself would be HaMashiach. You think, my Jewish brothers and sisters, because you've been taught this by your rabbis, that this Messiah who would come would just be a normal man. But the Bible says right there in the Tanakh, all have sinned, really. That there is none righteous, no, not one. So since sin had to be atoned for, like Pesach said, like Passover said, by the blood of a blemish-free sacrifice, you see that not just any man would do, because all men had sinned. There was none righteous, no, not one, like the Tanakh says. So you see, here's the dilemma. No one was righteous, and sin had to enter the world through man and Adam in the book of Genesis. And now it had to be atoned for through man, but a blemish-free man, one free from sin, in order to take it out of the world permanently, once and for all time. So, how could that happen? The blemish-free Lamb of God. God became a man. He was born into the body of a little infant. Nothing too hard for God. Remember, could He still be upon the throne of heaven and still be born into a physical life as a little man at the same time? We go back to the original question. Is there anything impossible for God? No, nothing is impossible with God. He spoke heaven and earth into existence and created all things in six days and rested on the seventh. Is there anything too hard for God? I'm asking one last time, is anything impossible with God? No. Can He be a man? Can He be born into the body of a man and live a sinless life so that He would qualify to be the Passover offering for the sins of mankind? And that all who put His blood on the doorpost of their heart that they will be saved through Him. And when He sees the blood of His Mashiach, the Lamb of God, He will pass over that person in judgment. That's the way it works. And if you will, my brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters, that is what the meaning of Passover is. You see, when we think about some significant event in the past, we make a memorial to it and a day that we observe that on and we remember that day. But God knows the future just like you and I know the past. And so He looked forward at that time all the way from Genesis, uh, from Exodus chapter 12 when He gave us the ordinances of Passover, of Pesach. He looked forward to that time when He would become a man and give His life for the sins of mankind. And he memorialized Passover, Pesach, in the things that he required and the order that it would be done. Remember, when we celebrate a Pesach Seder, when we celebrate a Passover Seder, the word Seder is order. There's an order for the way that things would be done. <coughs> Excuse me. And that God had an order because he looked forward to the time in which he would give his life, and he knew the exact way that he would give his life. He knew that cup of redemption during the Passover Seder, that he would be that redemption. He knew that time where he would recall the sorrows of our past when we were in Egypt or when we were in sin, you see. And so he came to be the blemish-free sacrifice for our sins. 
There's only one way that justice and mercy can be satisfied at the same time. That's what I'm saying. And they both met on the cross of Calvary when God, the blemish-free sacrifice for His own atonement, became the sacrifice on that cross. The blemish-free Lamb of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, died for the sins of mankind. And all who believe on Him as Messiah and Lord will be saved. These are the things that our scripture today will be talking about. Let's go through that scripture now. It says in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. He's a man. And since he himself is also subject to weakness, you see, he knows what people go through. Because of this, he, we're talking about Hakohen Agadol, the chief priest, is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. In other words, from all that time, from Exodus forward to the Christ, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins before he could go into the Holy of Holies in the holy place and offer sacrifices for the sins of all of Israel, all the people of Israel, Am Israel. And it continues in verse 4 and it says, And no man takes this honor to himself. What honor are we talking about? The honor of being chief priest, the honor of being Hakon Hagadol. But he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, it says. Now, let's stop for a bit and let's talk about what these verses mean before we continue through the rest of Hebrews chapter 5. Let's look at what this is talking about. It's talking about the high priest doesn't take this honor to himself, but he's called by God. He's chosen by God and he's called by God for the role of the high priest. It says in these verses that the high priest offers both gifts and sacrifices. He offers both gifts and sacrifices to God. Now why is that? Well, not every sacrifice in the Torah, in the law, was a sacrifice for sins. Others were gifts as well. Gifts of thanksgiving, praise offerings, peace offerings, Offerings of thanksgiving to God for what he had already done. Well, the Kohen Hagadol, HaKohen Hagadol offers both gifts and sacrifices, things that will atone for sins, but also remembrances of God's goodness and faithfulness to the people. It's also appropriate that we offer thanksgiving and praise for God for all he's done in our lives and forgiving our sins. All he's done. But the Kohen Agadoah, the chief priest, offered the gifts and the sacrifices. That's a very nice way to sum up what the role of the high priest is. Now, he's also an intermediary between God and the people, between God and man. Here's what that means. He's the go-between. He's the one who represents mankind before the throne of God. Did you know that it also talks about this concept quite a bit? in the Bible. It talks about how there is one God 
and man, and then there is the mediator, one mediator between God and man, and that's the Son of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. But this intermediary represents the people before God. That's why he had the breastplate in the Bible, in the Torah. That's why the Kohen Hagadol had the breastplate with the 12 tribes of Israel represented on it in the 12 precious stones. Remember that? It was a breastplate. It hung from his shoulders and it was always before him. Well, why was that? Because it was to remind him that he represented the 12 tribes of Israel. He represented the people. He wasn't just doing this for a job. He didn't just have this for some prestigious political assignment. This wasn't a role that he was elected to by a vote or something from the people. He was chosen by God. And he was told by God, I want you to wear this breastplate that has these precious stones on the front of it. Each stone represents one of the 12 tribes of Israel so that he would remember that he was there to hold the people up before God. That's an important concept. He was there to hold the people up before God. He was there to represent the people. Also, it reminded him of their needs. I mean, as he's representing the people, I'm sure he could see the faces from those that he knew. If he could see the faces of the families he worked around, he knew their needs, their weaknesses. And he was one of them because his own sins and weaknesses as a man as well. So when he would look at them and he would make sacrifices for the sins of Am Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, he would remember what they were like. He would see their plight. He would know their weaknesses. He would know how much they fall, how much they fail to keep the law at all time. And so he would offer these sacrifices with compassion as he in his mind would remember who these people were that he represented. So he could remember them and act on their behalf as chief priest. He could act on their behalf with sympathy. Now let's go back to our scripture as we're reading through today. It says in verse 5 that he would be a priest forever. It's talking about how the Mashiach, when he came, would be a priest forever. It says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. He wasn't elected or voted by the people to be high priest. It wasn't a political office like it was in the days of Rome where the Roman emperors and governors would elect what, who, who's, someone that they thought should be the high priest, someone that would be loyal to Rome. No, this person came from the Cohens, from Aaron's descendancy, and God himself would choose that high priest. It says in verse 5 then, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become the high priest, but it was God who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's quoting from the Tanakh, what would be said about the Mashiach, the Messiah. And verse 6 continues, as he also says in another place in the Tanakh, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want to talk to you about this. This verse is particularly interested, 
interesting to us because it had always seemed like to the Jewish people that a high priest would live for his lifespan and then he would die and he would be replaced by his son or someone else from the order of the Cohens, from the descendancy of Aaron, Aaron, the brother of Moshe, Moses the prophet. But now, God in the, in the Tanakh, this is in the Tanakh, says of the Mashiach, God himself says, you are a priest forever. Well, that's a concept that we hadn't heard up until that point in time. How can a priest live forever? You know, the Bible teaches us that the soul that sins, it shall die. Uh, that's in the book of Yehezkel HaNavi, Ezekiel the prophet in English. God had said, the soul that sins, it shall die. But now, we're, he's talking about a priest that lives forever. So what does that tell you? It tells you that this priest who lives forever will not die. But God said, the soul that sins, it shall die. So if this priest will not die, but he'll be a priest forever, then it seems like that's telling us that this priest will have no sin. But again, those verses in Psalms and Isaiah said that none are righteous, no, not one. All of mankind, there wasn't one without sin, all the time. One who kept the law, all of the 613 commands, there wasn't one who kept all of those things all the time. And then God Himself, like we said from the book of Isaiah, went forward. He was born into the life of a little child, grew up, and He became that one who kept the law at all time so that He would qualify to be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And now God is bearing witness to that Himself in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. Now, Tanakh is Old Testament for our English listeners today. He says, God Himself says, you are a priest forever. How can He be forever? He doesn't live forever if He's a normal man. But if God became a man, kept the law at all time, then He had no sin. So when Ezekiel said, the soul that sins it shall die, does not apply to this Mashiach that God became and as He kept the law. And so He would be the acceptable sacrifice. You see how all this is starting to work together? But then he said something also in this verse that we just read. He said, according to the order of Melchizedek. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what about this person, Melchizedek? Who is he? Why is he so important? Well, we know in the Bible that when Abraham had <coughs> conquered all these kings and rescued his nephew Lot from these kings, coming back through, he met this priest called Melchizedek. And this priest blessed Abraham, and Abraham tithed a tenth to Melchizedek. Abraham knew that this was one greater than him. He knew his own calling of God, that God had said, I will bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you, and, and everyone who curses you will be cursed, but he who blesses you will be blessed. Abraham knew that he was great because of God's blessing. But he thought so highly of this Melchizedek that he met on the way back from this battle that he gave a tenth of all of his possessions to Melchizedek. In other words, Abraham viewed Melchizedek as a high priest. 
Well, who is he? The Bible doesn't speak really anything of him. All we know is he has no beginning and no end in the Bible. He's not described anywhere else. But it's interesting what his name means. And you Hebrew speakers already know where I'm going with this. His name in Hebrew, now in English we call it Melchizedek. Oh, it's Melchizedek. And even in English we think, oh, that was so good. I learned how to pronounce that properly, Melchizedek. But you Hebrew speakers, you know what it really means. Melchizedek in English turns out to be Melchizedek. Melchi, you already know that word. If we say Hamelech David, you know that we're saying King David, the King David. If we say Hamelech Shlomo, you know that we're saying the King Solomon. Well, Melchi is a way of saying Melech, which means king in Hebrew. But when you add that E-type sound on the end, Melchi, you're saying my king, my king. When you add that E-type sound, that little short I on the end, you're saying, this is my king. Melchi, then, is Melech with that little I sound on the end. Melchi is my king. And then the second part of his name, Tzedek, Melchi Tzedek, is how we say it in Hebrew. Tzedek is righteous, a righteousness. So you're saying, my righteous king, or my king is righteousness. Either way means the same thing. So altogether, it's my righteous king or my king is righteous. And so he's saying in this verse that he's quoting from the Tanakh here in this verse in verse 6 today that we just read, you, speaking of the Mashiach, the Messiah, are a priest forever, which means first of all, well, he's got to live forever if he's a priest forever. How does that work? That says right there he's someone other than just a regular man because all the regular men have sinned. And what the soul that sins shall die, as it said in Ezekiel. But then the second part, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, okay? You are a priest forever according to the order of my righteous king. Who is the real righteous king in heaven? God. Who is the only truly righteous one in all of creation? God. There is none good but God. So you are a priest forever, he says of the Mashiach, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's beautiful how the Bible gives us these messages as we're going through there. Now back to the scripture. In verse 7 we continue, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Now this is a very fascinating part of Scripture. He's saying that the Mashiach learned obedience by the things that he suffered, but yet we're saying that the Mashiach was God himself who had become a man. How could God suffer? Well, understand something. Remember, the great priest, HaKohen HaGadol, had to be a man because he had to be familiar with the sufferings of the people. He had to understand what they were going through. He had to understand how much they were tempted, how hard it was to say no to that temptation all the time. 
He had to understand their weakness. He had to understand their failings. And because they always failed and always sinned, he had to understand their dilemma that they were going to hell unless their sins were not forgiven. Because Ezekiel, again, the soul that sins, it shall die. So there had to be atonement to cover those sins. But there wasn't going to be atonement just year after year, forever and ever, from just regular men who had sins for themselves. So God became a man. He became the blemish-free Lamb of God who kept all of those 613 commands. Sheshmot, Shloshes, Remitzvot, Batorah. In the Bible, He kept all of those 613 commands in the law at all times so that He would qualify to give His life once and for all to remove sin from creation. But God becoming a man was in heaven first. And in heaven He didn't suffer. But it said in our verses today as we just read in, the, in Hebrews chapter 5 that He learned obedience through suffering. How does that work? How could He learn obedience by the things He suffered when He was God? In heaven He didn't suffer. He didn't have to suffer. He was God. All the glory of heaven belonged to Him. But in becoming a man, by God's own requirements for what a chief priest would be, He learned the weaknesses of man. He learned how to suffer like man suffered. He knew what it was like to feel pain. He knew what it was like to have disappointment in others, to have others betray you. Nowhere in the Bible, you see, does it say that believers will not have to suffer. In fact, their Lord Himself suffered, not because He deserved to suffer, but because God the Father wanted to make sure that He understood the people who He would be representing. And remember in the book of Genesis that Joseph, Joseph suffered in the book of Genesis. We see a story. He was sold into slavery in prison. Then when he got out of prison, some, a lady lied about him uh, trying to attack her and he was back in prison again. All these different things separated from his brothers, his family all this time. Joseph was Hamashiach ben Yosef. You see, the, the Messiah, the son of David. Uh, I'm sorry, the Messiah, the son of Joseph is the way we described his dilemma, that Joseph was a type of, or he was an illustration of how the Messiah would suffer in order to save the rest of us. Joseph was an illustration of how God's Messiah, when he came, would suffer in order to save the rest of Israel. And so today, we are speaking to you, my brothers and sisters, in Israel talking about what God's plan is to save you. And now it's come back to the place where it all started, in the land of Israel. And it's resting with you, my brothers and sisters. And the responsibility of carrying this message to all around you and to the rest of the world rests with you, my brothers and sisters. This is not only the story of the New Testament. This is a story of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Torah. Joseph suffered so that he might save those others of Israel. Isn't that interesting how that works the same as the Messiah and how he lived in the person of Jesus or Yeshua? And in the same way, believers should realize that as Christ was in the world, we're also in the world. He said that the world will hate you because it hated him. 
and you belong to him. So if the world persecuted him, he's saying, they're going to persecute you as well. So yeah, there's going to be some suffering. Don't let anyone tell you there won't be some suffering. But here's the good news. God will bring you through it all gloriously and joyously. He'll see you through it. There may be sorrow in the nighttime, but joy comes in the morning. God is going to take care of you. And remember that God can sometimes use adversity to bring you to a place that you wouldn't have otherwise gone on your own. Remember Joseph. He didn't want to be sold into slavery, but God had plans to use what his brothers did to him to bring about the salvation and saving of his entire family, all of Israel at that time. And God will cause whatever the enemy tries to do to you, to harm you, to bless you instead. All things work together for your good because you belong to God. That's what Romans chapter 8 says in verse 28. So you see, even though there will be suffering from time to time, it's okay. It's part of God's plan. And He's going to take away that suffering one day. But right now, you are working in the image of Jesus Christ. And He suffered, and so His followers suffer from time to time as well. Jesus learned obedience. It says He learned obedience in those verses that we just read. Well, He knew how to obey. He had always obeyed the Father. He never disobeyed God. But what does it mean He learned obedience? Well, simply it means that He learned the things that humans felt. He felt their weaknesses. He knew the temptation to not obey. That's what it says when He learned obedience. He learned what it felt like to obey as a human. But he overcame all those things and he obeyed the Father. He learned obedience from a human perspective. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that he was disobeying before. No, he learned what it means to obey from a human perspective. It says that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In other words, suffering was used to teach Jesus. To teach Jesus what humans felt. To teach Jesus something about the people that he was representing as the high priest. He left the glory of heaven to become one of us. In heaven he had not felt human suffering like we felt it here. But once he left the glory of heaven, he felt what it was like to be in a body of flesh. He knew what pain was like. He knew what hunger was like. He knew what it was like to feel betrayed by others. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, it gives a picture in the Tanakh of what the Mashiach felt. It says that he was despised. He was rejected by men. That he was a man of sorrows. It says that he would be acquainted with grief. This is the Lord who became a man to live and walk among us, to give the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to restore us to God. He learned all these things, sorrow, rejection, grief. He learned what it felt like to go through those things, just like you and I do, because he was the great priest who would stand for the people. And in the same chapter in Isaiah 53, it says that by his stripes we are healed. So let me ask you a question. If suffering was what God used to teach His only begotten Son, the Son of God, then why can't God use suffering at times to teach us as well? Just give yourself to God. He'll see you through that, and you'll understand one day what He was doing. 
Don't ever question when God uses adversity to lead you somewhere in life that you wouldn't have gone on your own. He'll use that adversity to instruct you in life, to teach you. He knows what He's doing. Let's get back to our verses. Verse 9 as we continue on. It says, And having been perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who would obey Him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And we said Melchizedek, He's righteous king, the king of righteousness. That's the order that our Messiah would be from. And Melchizedek had no beginning and no end. You see what I'm saying? The Mashiach was prophesied to be one with no beginning and no end. Who is that speaking of? God is the only one that fits that description. Now let's talk about how the Messiah knows about being one of us and the things that we go through. Not only is He one of us, He understands what we go through, how weak we are. He sees our pain. He sees our despair. He sees the innermost hopelessness and despair in our lives, in our hearts. He knows our sorrow. He understands our needs. He knows what it's like to be hungry, like we said. But He also lives forever, it says to intercede to God on our behalf. That's what it's going to say in Hebrews 7, verse 25, when we get there later in our studies. It says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's what I'm saying. He is right there at the throne of God interceding for you and I 24-7, all the time. He's representing us in the things of God. He's representing us in the Holy of Holies, the real Holy of Holies, the one in heaven. Remember God told Moses when he was making the tabernacle in the wilderness, he said, make it after the pattern that I showed you. What he was showing Moses was the pattern of the real tabernacle in heaven. So now Jesus as high priest is right before the throne of God interceding for mankind forever because He always lives to make intercession for us. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. No beginning, no end. He doesn't have any sin, so this, uh, what it said in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel about the soul that sins it shall die, that doesn't apply to Him because He had no sin. So He doesn't die. He lives forever, and guess what He's doing forever? Making intercession for you and I. God loves you, my friend. I want to say that again because that's what all of this comes down to. God loves you. Jesus is there making intercession for you. That's what it means that He's lifting us up before God, interceding for us. He knows who we are. He knows our weaknesses. And those who believe on Him he is always representing us before the Father in heaven. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Our great high priest lives forever. And forevermore, he'll be watching over us and representing us. And God the Father loves us because we have loved and believed on his Son, whom he sent to save us. Now remember that although he took our sins upon himself, as an atonement, he had no sins of his own, so death could not hold him. 
He would pay the price for our sins, but because He had no sins of His own, death couldn't hold Him, and He was the accepted sacrifice for our sins as well. Death is a result of sin, as we said, but He had no sins of His own. So death couldn't claim Him, so He was an acceptable sacrifice. Therefore, He lives forever. And He's able to always represent us before God's throne. He's able to always save us and keep us in His hand, all who come to God through Him completely. In the book of Job, in the Tanakh, it says in chapter 9, verse 33, Job himself is asking about this. And he thinks to himself, he says, well, we need someone who can represent man before God. He was talking about that Hebrew word goel, which is a representative. He says, if only there were someone to mediate between us, between man and God, someone to bring us together. Well, God has sent that mediator, and it's his Mashiach, Jesus, the Son of God. That's our Savior. He's our mediator. He's our goel. He's the anointed one. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our great high priest. And that is why it says in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We go back and finish up our scriptures now. Verse 11 says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Ouch! Wow! He's talking about us now becoming hard of hearing. Now the writer of Hebrews takes a break from talking about this great high priest and the Messiah being that high priest. And now he's concerned about who he's writing this to, the Hebrew people that he's writing to. He starts thinking about well, they may be too immature to be discussing such concepts as this high priest and the, the theology and the doctrine behind the Messiah being the high priest and the high, the high priest being a model of when the Messiah would come. He, he might be thinking, oh, these people should, that I'm writing to should be mature by now. But maybe they're not understanding. They've been believers for some time now, but they haven't really grown in their faith as they should have. Verse 11, he says, you have become dull of hearing. Now, that's interesting. When he says you have become dull of hearing, it's obviously saying that they used to be able to hear. They used to be sharp of hearing. In the recent past, they were okay, and they could hear and understand these complex things. But now, for some reason, they become dull of hearing, and they struggle to understand. Somehow, they become dull of hearing. When you don't spend time in God's Word, when you don't spend time in prayer, when you no longer spend time fellowshipping with other believers, you become dull of hearing. You become hard-hearted. You get lazy in your walk with the Lord. You fall to a place where you don't care anymore. You think only about your salvation as a ticket to heaven and not as being born into an entirely new and wonderful life that's just the beginning. Now let's continue our reading in verse 12. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. In other words, a baby. Verse 14 continues then. It says, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. They're grown up, in other words. 
those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now let's talk about what that's saying. Notice that here he's changed the tone of this chapter. And now he's talking to the people about immaturity. He makes the comment about them becoming a baby again. Becoming a baby again. In other words, he's not saying that you're still a baby. He's saying you're becoming a baby again. In other words, you're regressing as opposed to growing in maturity and wisdom. You're not progressing, you're regressing. Now why do people do that? Mostly because they get taken away from the Word of God. They don't have that anchor anymore. They don't have that anchor of the wisdom in the Word of God. Here's some of the things that take them away from God's Word. Many people use their feelings to tell them what to do. They feel like doing this, or they don't feel good about doing that. But feelings can change. You can eat the wrong kind of food and really feel bad at your stomach, even though that food tasted so good when you ate it and it was in your mouth. But that food that looks so good before can be totally bad for you after it's in you. But you felt good when you ate that food, didn't you? And then it made you sick. It didn't work like it was supposed to. In the same way, you can't trust your feelings. What I'm saying is you can't trust emotions. You need to be anchored to the Word of God. That's the way people are when they make decisions of their, about their lives based on feelings, based on emotions. They make mistakes. They make errors in their decision. You have no trustworthy anchor in life when you're just trusting your feelings. That anchor of the Word of God is what's going to keep you from drifting. It's going to keep you tied to the truth. And that's the Word of God that is so important to you. It keeps you tied safely to the truth because your feelings can lie to you. Your feelings can change depending on the circumstances. But God's Word never changes. God's Word is sure. God's Word is dependable. And the Word of God will see you safely through life. Another reason people have not grown in their relationship with God, but they've turned back into a baby again, is because they're not sure of who to listen to. They have these favorite people that they listen to, and one says one thing and another says the other. And then the world itself is telling them how they should live their life and tells them they should just be like everybody else that they need to get in line with what the world expects them to be. They need to behave like everybody else expects them to behave. They think that they have to be like everybody else. When you're listening to the world and you're just following along for society, whatever it says, you may think that that's a safe thing to do, but it's not the safe thing to do. You need to stand for what's right. You need to stand against what's wrong. How are you going to know what's right and what's wrong unless you're anchored to the Word of God? In the Tanakh, society and even the leaders of Israel and the religious leaders were often the ones who persecuted and even killed the prophets that God sent. What I'm saying is the majority of the people turned against the prophets that God sent. So if you think that it must be right if everyone else is doing it, then how come all those people were against God and killed God's prophets? 
You see, it doesn't work like that. There's not safety in numbers in that way. The safety that you're looking for is in the Word of God. All of those people who persecuted the prophets of God were just like everybody else. They were just doing what society expected them to do. Very few people took a stand for the Word of God that that prophet was speaking. And in the same way, people today seem to think that if everyone is doing something, it's got to be okay. See, it's the same thing that we think today. We haven't learned that lesson. But no, it's not true. It's a lie that you have to be like everybody else. And if people in Israel today are telling you that you can't believe on Yeshua because that's not what everybody else in Israel does, then you need to step back from that, look at the Word of God on your own, and make your own decision. Because we've already shown that the crowd, the mob, society itself, can be wrong. Now don't get me wrong, I love my Jewish brothers and sisters. Ani otcha. The Ani lasot hadvrim she'elohim oti. I want to do the things that God wants me to do. I want to do the things that He is asking me to do. I'm not concerned about what the world is asking me to do. There's only one way to know that what you're doing is the right thing, that you're believing in the true and living God and not just doing what other people want you to do that looks religious. That way that's going to show you what's right and what's wrong is the Word of God. There's no substitute for the Word of God. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. That's what the Lord said. His word is truth. His word is reliable. His word endures. And the word of God always contains the wisdom you need to get safely through life. All these fads and current trends of man will come and go. So-called wisdom of man will change. One day they'll think that you have to do this. The next day they'll be completely against doing that. And then a, a, a short time later they'll come back to the first thing. It's always changing. People are flip-flopping about what's right and what's do, what's wrong. Because you know as well as I do, some people say that the things that are good are now they're saying that they're wrong, that they're bad. What used to be good is now considered to be bad. And what used to be considered bad is now considered to be good. Where are you going to find a compass that tells you which way the truth is? Where are you going to find the map that shows you the way that you need to go? That's the Word of God. It's your anchor to the truth. The Word of God gives light to our path and safety to our decisions. When you use God's Word to test your options and your belief, you'll be safe. Things may look good until you look in the Word of God and then it speaks against what you were considering. Then you'll know, oh, turn away from that, go the other way. God has something better for you. You'll be safe if your ways agree with God's Word. You'll be safe and your path will be sure. Why don't you give your life to God today, right now? If you call out to Him, He's going to hear you. He's going to hear that cry and He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness you're in. He'll shine His light on your heart 
and you'll be given newness of life. He'll shine His light on your heart and change you into a new person and throw all that bad history away. You'll be completely new and He'll give you everlasting life in heaven. That's guaranteed by God Himself. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life today. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment, just like we've been saying today. Just pray something like this. God, I do want to know You and have real peace in life. I believe on Your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to You. Thank You, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you. And He's already started working in your life. Over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes He's making inside in your heart. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him in His Word. And talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do amazing things in your life.